0: someone like Augustine, someone like Anselm, someone like Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, they're, they're, it's not like they're all just sort of saying the same thing, and they're not all just repeating the same thing, but they are so deeply committed to the teachings of the church um, that they, they don't... N- none of them think originality is a, is a good thing.
1: <laughs> Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine. An Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Have you ever heard the phrase used, perfect being? Or perhaps the longer phrase, perfect being theology? Believe it or not, this phrase is incredibly important. Uh, it's not only one that I love to bring up in my own classes, but of course I'm standing on the shoulders of others like Gustin and Anselm and Aquinas, the, the A-team as I like to call them, though I suppose there's other A's we could add to that list. Uh, it's a phrase that uh, really defines and in some ways explains what it means to believe in the classical doctrine of God. The classical doctrine of God, which uh, we have talked about before on the Credo podcast, uh, has a lot to do with divine simplicity or attributes like divine immutability or impassibility or God's eternity, his timelessness, and so, so many others. Sometimes, though, this phrase is a bit confusing to some because some might ask, well, don't we, if, if we are Christians, don't we all believe in a perfect being? So, what exactly do we mean? But of course, I've given away the answer already. As you can tell, a perfect being or perfect being theology actually says something quite specific about the type of God that we are talking about, namely a God who is without limitations. Well, It's hard to think of anyone better to come on the Credo podcast and talk about perfect being theology than Catherine Rogers, or as I will call her, Kate. She is a professor of philosophy at the University of Delaware. If you have read any of her writings, then you know that she has a very special, a very unique specialty, um, and that is medieval philosophy and uh, medieval philosophy at large, uh, specifically a figure like Anselm in particular. Uh, she has a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame and an honorary Ph.D. as well from St. Anselm College. I I would love to introduce our reader listeners, that is, to some of her books. Uh, she has many of them. Uh, of course, the one that I'm most excited to reference is Perfect Being Theology. Uh, this is Actually, it's amazing how concise this book is, only 150 pages, and yet 150 pages that explain the doctrine of God with great clarity and depth. She's also the author of several other books, including uh, two books with Oxford University Press, uh, Anselm on Freedom, and uh, which was published, published recently in 2015, as well as Freedom and Self-Creation. Uh, Another book that builds on uh, a book from 2008 that builds on so much of her specialty. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast and joining us.
0: Well, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for inviting me.
2: You know, I think I have to ask at the very start, uh, before we get into some of the some of these, you know, the the deep things of God, if we call them that. um, You know, you have. You're so unique because you're coming on this podcast and you're one of the few, I think, that I've had that actually has a unique specialty, specialization, that is, in medieval thought, medieval philosophy. You've written on um, medieval thinkers like Anselm, for example. So I just have to ask at the start, how how in the world did that happen? How... I mean, you go back 10, 20 years, however long, at what point did you think... (laughs) Even
0: a little more than that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, come on now. Uh, At what point did you think, you know what, uh, I'm going to dedicate a large portion of my career and my life and my writing, uh, all my energy to medieval philosophy?
0: Well, I'll tell you. Um, I read C.S. Lewis in high school. Mm. And uh, so then when... A, a course in medieval philosophy came up when I was I, I was a freshman still, my second semester freshman year in college. I thought, Oh well that sounds like C. S. Lewis kind of stuff. I'll take medieval philosophy. And I read Saint Anselm of Canterbury and medieval philosophy, and I thought, well, you know, this this all sounds about right to me. <laughs> and so I I decided to major in philosophy, and I, I've never looked back.
2: Wow, I'm I, I
0: so glad that I made that made that decision. It just seemed so obvious at the time.
2: You know what I have? So I have four four children, and you you just gave me hope <laughs> because <laughs> if uh that can happen to a high schooler then you've you've really redeemed all of my hope for um, for adolescence and uh, youth and uh, the, the future of of our country. At that,
0: <laughs> well, as long as everybody has copies of the Chronicles
2: of Narnia, I think we're probably we're probably we're going safe. to be okay. Yes, absolutely. I can say amen to that. <laughs> and at what point? I mean, you so you're you're reading lewis uh and of course anyone who knows lewis knows uh some of his own background uh in this area as well um not just literature but uh medieval literature but um you take you you turn towards anselm in particular why anselm um well
0: there are a couple of reasons i mean a- anselm is um a- a- for one thing, he's very much influenced by St. Augustine, and mm. I think St. Augustine is really one of the major architects of Western thought, and I just, I, I love Augustine. Um, it, the advantage of being an Anselm scholar, though, is that, that Augustine wrote so much that, you know, you could just yeah. t- to try to master it all in your lifetime. Some oh. Some people have, you know, and I think that it, it's a miraculous event, whereas Anselm He's he's drawing on Augustine, and so he's within that same um, sort of uh, practice. But he his works are shorter; they're very nice and clear. It's it's really I mean, it's, mm. um, everybody needs to learn to read Latin because um, uh, and it, in translation they're kind of confusing. But his Latin is very nice and easy, mm. and you know, so he's he's kind of easy to master. And also, I just I just tend to think that he's. Right about most <laughs> <first> things.
2: <laughs> that helps
0: what can i say uh, and and rereading him over the years i mean that yeah. i i hate to say it but i was a college freshman in 1971 mm. uh rereading him uh sort of over the years i you know every time i reread him i just discover more more depth and more um you know, just just sort of creative genius, without without straying from orthodoxy and the yeah. Augustinian tradition.
2: Mm. To our listeners, you know, I, it's, for some of you, you may be thinking, I've never even read Anselm before. Maybe some of you have, or you, you've you've heard Anselm referenced in lectures, for example, at, at university oh. or beyond. Uh, to our listeners, though just as Kate's saying Anselm's he didn't write as much as Augustine and you may want to pick up um I think it's published by Oxford University Press um it's a book called The Major Works uh of Anselm and in that one volume though it's not everything in that one volume you can have access to some of his most important important writings now Kate yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you you've mentioned here um your background in medieval uh, philosophy and Anselm, in particular, you know, you make a statement in one of your writings. You make this this statement that I I, I circled it, I underlined it, I highlighted <laughs> it. Uh-oh. Uh oh. It I, I it's just one of the, every once in a while I I come across a statement like this, and I think um, this this is a game changer. And the statement, uh, it, it's it's essentially this. Uh, you say that the the medieval's had the backing of powerful epistemic and metaphysical systems. And then you go on to make this claim that really uh, the medievals were far more consciously systematic than, well, than contemporary thinkers and philosophers. Now, I imagine that statement probably, you know, steps on a lot of toes. But I think you might be onto something, and I would love to hear, why Why is it that when you look at, when you compare, really, uh, contemporary philosophy and really the direction that uh, contemporary thought has gone on everything from the doctrine of God, God and beyond, why is it that there's such a major contrast between modern thought and uh, what you're referring to as uh, medieval or, or maybe even beyond that with with patristics with classical thought what is the contrast and why <laughs> why why that's make a, such that's a bold a hard one
0: <laughs> I, I mean i guess the, the the contemporary um philosophy that i'm uh most familiar with is is contemporary analytic philosophy of religion and and a lot of it is really great you know i don't uh, you know i, d- I don't want to um uh, you know criticize it in the sense that it's it's not it's it's uh, really interesting stuff, the the medievals that I study are, of course, towering figures. And, and that's part of it. You know, when you find a towering figure uh, in the history of philosophy, they're towering precisely because their work is so deep and so broad. But here's, I, I hope I'm not being unfair to contemporary analytic philosophy, but, but here's the thing I find. Um, someone like Augustine, someone like Anselm, someone like Thomas Aquinas—you um, know—they're—they're. They're, it's not like they're all just sort of saying the same thing, and they're not all just repeating the same thing. But they are so deeply committed to the teachings of the Church um, that they—they they don't. N- none of them think originality is a is a good thing. Mm. <laughs> what they what they're trying to do. Is to take the 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 greatest that the earlier non-Christian philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. What what did those guys have to offer? To take that, but apply it completely within in this kind of very almost humble way within the Christian um, tradition. And and when you read contemporary analytic philosophers, uh, they they just they don't seem to have that same kind of commitment to a tradition not 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 all of them some of them do but many of them seem seem not to
2: mm. you know you also go on to say uh not not only that but um as as you're sort of making your your case here for medieval as opposed to modern uh, you go on to talk about how um modern philosophy you know you think of someone like Hume or Kant for example um, they've they 've told us in different ways you know we can 't make we we really can 't make much sense out of out of things or anything, but then when yeah. you turn to um medieval thoughts, um, not only do they assume we can, but uh, you go on to argue that actually when we look at cur- current questions, uh, the medieval approach actually has a lot to say and, and can actually help us. So it's not as if um, you're just repristining, you know, the past, but you actually think, hey, we're retrieving this with good reason for some of the contemporary challenges. Is that right?
0: that that is exactly right I, I mean i think that's i think it's just incredibly obvious in philosophy of religion and and i think a lot of contemporary philosophers of religion would would agree with that but e, even outside philosophy of religion i think um in in different areas people are recovering uh medieval and ancient thought
2: <laughs> now when we talk about um really the the core of, of medieval thought, And of course, as you mentioned, you know, you think of someone like Anselm, this, this goes back to uh, a very Augustinian theme, someone like Augustine uh, who has says it in his own way. But when we talk about the core of it, we are, we are referring to this perfect being and uh, we're, I mean, you've made this argument in different ways that, well, for them, um, when when they refer to a being who is superior, uh, one who is not bound in, in by our type of limitations as creatures, they actually uh, take this in a doxological direction. And, and in other words, for for someone like Anselm and others, only the, the greatest, most perfect being is worthy of worship. Uh, c- can you speak to that? To that. Emphasis for a moment.
0: Sure, um, I mean it, it. It seems to me, Anselm has this very famous uh, phrase that uh, he, of course, he didn't invent, but he says, you know, we all understand God to be that in which nothing greater can be conceived, and and then he, you know, unpacks that, and that's that's essentially perfect being theology. But then you might go, well, why why should somebody start there? And th- the argument would be. Um you and I and your listeners, no offense to anyone, are, are very limited. Our concepts are very limited. And so if, if you and I, little little human beings, could think of something greater than God, it it's it makes no sense to think that we should worship a being that our little concepts can kind of transcend and so um a, you know the I mean the medievals just took it for granted that a that a being worthy of worship would be a being than which no none greater can be conceived, but then it follows that you know if if you wanted to attribute to God some kind of failing um that that just can't be right, you know it's because a a being with a failing is not that in which none greater can be conceived.
2: Mm. It, and to elaborate on that, what would then be? Um, let's flesh this out a little bit. Uh, what what would be some of the what would be some of the type of limitations then that would compromise this greatest possible being that Anselm is 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 conceiving this perfect being?
0: Well, um. Some philosophers—it depends on where you start, right? Some philosophers, for example, if they start with their own interpretation of certain biblical passages, think that God has to be in time hmm. because, oh look, He changed His mind or He didn't know this or that. <laughs> he He found it out later, kind of thing, and and um. Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, you know, all all of the great medieval figures, I mean, everybody who reads the Bible seriously knows it needs to be interpreted, but they're going to take one interpretive uh, principle to be, God is that in which nothing greater can be conceived. So if a biblical passage makes it look like God is uh, temporally limited the way we are, that he uh, maybe he doesn't know the future because you know it, it hasn't happened or something like that, um, then that you know they're going to say that interpretation has to be wrong because God has to be uh, eternal. He can't suffer the the limitations of being sort of stretched out and extended across time. So that would be a, a prime example.
2: Yeah, and that that example is a very real one. Um... Uh, so many both in the academy and and then e- some, even in the church at times um would would tend to limit god either in terms of his knowledge or his timelessness um try to limit god in, in some way sometimes you i mean you you that's a very perceptive um intuition because it, sometimes it's based on um their hermeneutic their reading of a certain passage or set of passages uh other times it, it may be um a certain uh presupposition that is just non-negotiable for them. Uh for some of them it, it may be that, well, God cannot know the future. Uh for others, and I've I've bumped up against this as well, um th- especially of late, uh there tends to be in the last several decades a bit of um uh well hostility might be too strong, though, maybe not, but um, suspicion maybe, <laughs> uh, suspicion towards uh, divine simplicity or immutability or certainly impassibility. Um, maybe you could touch on some of these. Uh, you know, for Anselm, and, and you make this point really well, as he's describing someone than whom none greater can be conceived, for him than that that it would follow then that well there must be great making perfection's uh perfect perfection's if we can be redundant that um it, that it, that certainly preclude him from any type of limitation how does that work itself out then i mean especially in in your field uh with other analytic more more contemporary philosophers as you start to bump up against well anything from simplicity to uh immutability.
0: Yeah, well it, it makes it fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> because there's there's lots to disagree about. No, I mean it's it's interesting. Simplicity, for example, is um is a really I mean it's a really, really tough um claim. So the the claim that God is simple, the way the medievals did it, they really, really meant it. Yeah. What what they say is that God there is no sense at all in which God can be said to have parts or even even to be sort of composed of various different attributes or even even to sort of have a nature with various sort of things added on to it. Just just none of that. Um and, and for a while there I think contemporary Philosophers just went well. That's stupid, you know. <laughs> who would say such a dumb thing? Uh, but actually, several uh, in the last couple of decades, I think some some of them have been kind of coming back around and, and been sort of forced to take it more seriously. So, uh, you know, that's I guess that's good news. So there's, there's actually right now, you know, you you can look in the journals and there's a you know a debate going on right now about divine simplicity with and uh, you know it, it's got its defenders.
2: And when we talk about divine simplicity, and that's encouraging to hear, by the way, Um, but when we talk about divine simplicity, of course, we're we're describing, as you just mentioned, that God is without parts. And um, maybe, maybe you can elaborate at this point. Why is it that, well, if God does have parts, he could be divided, he could be Corruptible, perhaps, or even there could be some type of weakness exactly
0: yeah if if you go back you know to the original the original claim, right God is that in which nothing greater can be conceived, so the the issue isn't um you know, suppose somebody says oh well nobody, nobody can take out a scalpel and cut God up but but Anselm goes, look when the the issue is something in which nothing greater can be conceived, so if you can conceive of god as composed of different parts then even if even if you're thinking of something that can't you know in in reality be pulled apart you could still conceive of of the different parts being pulled apart and corrupted and and that's not god <laughs> because god has to be the kind of thing that just that it's inconceivable that he should um be able to somehow be pulled apart, mm. and and here's here's sort of another argument to go with that. Um, the the test for whether or not something has to be caused there's a, this is kind of a traditional argument. The 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 standard test is, can you conceive of it um, failing to exist? So if we say, well, you know, we can conceive of anything with parts failing to exist, then you're saying we can conceive of God failing to exist, and that means we have to think maybe he's caused. And of course, that's that's craziness, right? God can't possibly be caused. And so the medievals would standardly argue, look, any anything composed of parts is the kind of thing that requires a cause, because it's the kind of thing that could fail, e- even if it happens, to always exist. It's the kind of thing that can conceivably fail to exist. Mm. So God God just cannot have parts, they said. And and I argue in defense of that view.
2: <laughs> now you all you also I mean, building on that argument, you, you then um you you bring in another um major pillar uh to, to build up this this house we're calling perfect being theology. <laughs> and um you introduce this, another phrase called pure actuality. Uh, sometimes um, for our listeners, you may hear a theologian or philosopher refer to God as pure act. And of course, if you read some of the patristics or medievals, you'll notice it there as well. But uh, Kate, you you make the point that uh, if, if this is a God who is without parts, uh, one who is not is not caused, um, who's not constructed or composed or compounded in any way, then there can be no unrealized potential in him. And I think w- where you're going, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but here you're you're really laying the the foundation for an attribute like divine immutability. Uh, maybe you could elaborate on that.
0: <laughs> Ooh. No, I don't want to. it's too hard <laughs> um yeah, no i mean the the whole thing is it's really hard, but it you know it it i mean i like your your description of it as a building you know i mean they're they're systematic these things all really do fit together um yeah the the thought is that uh god being being that in which nothing greater can be conceived um there there can't possibly be anything lacking to him. So, can he get any better? No, right he's already as good as he can get couldn't couldn't he sort of get worse? Well, no, anything that can get worse is corruptible. Well, couldn't he just kind of change sideways um you know just gain something here or lose something there? Well, no, on two counts I mean, first count is that would imply that he had parts right? If he could lose and gain things, but also if he's if he's right now as as absolutely perfect as he can possibly be then and and all of his attributes are are just this this one perfect act of good then then the thought that that there's any any sort of loss or gain um is is just inconceivable so mm. so god does not change god is absolutely immutable
2: now- yeah now when you I, I really like how you phrase that uh you know he's without loss or gain um there there's a there's no point at, at which he has to be actualized or reach his potential so to speak um and this would this not only would set in place like you've said uh god's immutability but um also god's impassibility now from what from where i sit uh Impassibility, as I look at the way it's been uh, reacted to on the contemporary scene, um, mm-hmm. it's fallen on hard times, um, both in philosophy and theology. Uh, I certainly want to encourage our listeners to um, go back to someone like Anselm or Augustine or Aquinas and um, take a fresh look at the way they articulate these attributes, but impassibility included. Um, You say at one point, and and I love this statement, uh, in part because it's so bold, but also because I think uh, you're onto something. You say, um, as for myself, I find the idea of a God who is made to suffer by us and who needs us to be fulfilled a depressing concept of divinity. and that that last part right i mean uh, a god who not only suffers but a god who needs us to be fulfilled that's saying something so why is it kate tell us why are you so depressed <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i'm not cuz I, I yeah i guess I, I, I when i wrote that i mean I, I you know that book is from about 20 years ago mm. uh but but when i wrote that what, what i kept reading people who who seemed to be offended at the thought of of the medievals who who i mean who wanted to say god is this kind of pure pure act of love and joy and happiness you know god is completely happy but he doesn't he doesn't suffer he doesn't uh, you know i mean i i think that they they felt offended because yeah. look at all the evil in the world and there's all this evil in the world god god ought to be suffering somehow and that just made somehow they thought that made god seem better but um i just you know i i just don't see it i just it seems to me that um the thought that god should should suffer is just just strange um I mean, it, I, I think they're thinking on a human level. I mean, if there, there'd be something, if you, you know, if you were suffering and your mom, your mom thought it was fine, you know, that would be bad. But but the relationship that we have to God, I think, is not one where we should hope that He suffers with with our. I mean, of course, Christ does in a way, and so God does understand our suffering from from the inside but god um it in in himself um doesn't it i i think it's proper to say he he does not uh undergo these these what i would see as negative mm-hmm. um feelings and negative yeah, attributes.
2: yeah one way that um on that note i mean one way that i've tried to encourage others uh especially as you know they're suffering or they they uh, look at the world of suffering around us, is to say, you know, okay. On on first glance, it might appear comforting to say, "Oh, God is suffering too." Uh, God's and, and and um and, but it, at the same time, if they think through the logical implications of that, even biblical implications. Uh, it could be disastrous for God because uh, then uh, not only would He depend on us, but it would actually raise the question of whether He can save us at all. Uh, whether there's hope for a suffering world if He's just as much a victim, or to some extent a victim.
0: Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Like us. Yeah. Yeah. If 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 suffering if suffering goes all the way to the top yeah. and all the way to the very core of reality. Yeah, and, and that and that's somehow really really there, then yeah, can God really save us? Good good point.
2: Now you talk about God's goodness, um which I, I really appreciated because um in a book on classical theism um Perfect being theology. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about uh, some of these, you know, attributes from immutability to impassibility to simplicity and so on. But uh, sometimes overlooked is the goodness of God, um, which, of course, is so applicable is so applicable to us. Um, but even before we go in that direction. Um, you make a a fantastic point that well if if we understand that god is the source he's the source of of true goodness pure goodness that we see uh in our world then it's not it's not merely the case that he's a god who has goodness as if he he just merely possesses uh this property we're calling goodness um as if it sort of attaches to or is added to his nature but and, and here we come full circle, i suppose to simplicity, but he is he is good, he is goodness um how does i mean with with all you've done um in your work on the medievals, they had quite a bit of say about the goodness of god um why is it that they they love to describe it in this way?
0: Well i think they uh, they all take it at you know it's just absolutely for granted that god is is the absolute standard for good, and you know when you look around the world and you see things that are good or you see things that are that are bad, um evil I think proves the existence of this absolute standard too um, what what you're seeing is god's nature you know the the good all all the different kinds of good things and and the medievals just love. They loved the universe. They loved all this different stuff. They just thought it was so cool that you have, you know, all these different wonderful kinds of things in the universe, um, and all those good things are a reflection of the of the nature of God. And then, you know, all all the things that fall short of that, like uh, human sin, are um, uh, you know, are a failure or falling away from this this sort of absolute standard and and that's that's just a very you know that, that's just a basic fundamental idea i mean you find that in plato you find it in aristotle the the difference is that i mean i would argue at least uh you know ultimately it makes more sense in the medievals because building on guys like plato guys like aristotle but of course within the biblical tradition um they they're able to have this rich um Personal concept, that, you know. There's this absolute standard, and and yet this standard is a a loving person, and and that's just a much richer concept than than even those great you know mm. uh, non earlier non Christian views. But yeah, that that God is is this perfect standard of good is um, you know absolutely fundamental, <laughs> and uh, certainly in the 18, there is no no question about that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know what? What you just said there at the end, too. Um, I, I really want to, you know, conclude our 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 episode on on that type of a note because you. I mean, this is the the goodness of God here. Sometimes, um, whether it's philosophers or theologians, uh, I see this both at the kind of the the lay level in the church, but also in the academy. Uh, sometimes I hear this this, uh, I would call it a caricature at least, but uh, this contrast or tension, I think you call it a tension at, at one point, between what they will say, well, you know, they'll say something like, well, I know the God of the Bible. He's a personal God. He's a God that that I pray to, but uh, the classical God of Anselm or Augustine or others, uh, this, is, this is the God of the philosophers. He's distant. He's <laughs> yeah. He's uncaring. Um, These
0: these are people who haven't read Augustine and Anselm. I mean, Aquinas. Aquinas writes like a robot. So you could, you could almost maybe say that you could. But but if you read Augustine, you read Anselm. Like uh, you know, Anselm's great philosophical works. Many of them are. They just include prayers. They read his prayers. You can just you know, it's this wonderful synthesis Mm. of this deep devotion, personal devotion. You know, to this loving God, and bringing you know this powerful, powerful philosophical um, uh, ammunition yeah. <laughs> to trying to to because you know you you can you can love God at least their argument is you can love God even more if you if you. In, in in all humility and within the tradition and sticking to the the um, you know councils and whatnot. But if if you try to understand, it's it's a practice in love for guys like Augustine so. and yeah. Anselm. And yeah. and I assume Aquinas too. It's, I don't know Aquinas as well, and he is his, his writing. I think is a little drier, maybe, than Augustine and Anselm.
2: Yeah, you certainly have to. Um, I think it's it's there in An it's there in Aquinas. You have to. He makes you work for it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> uh, you know, you I, I love how you 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 say this. Um, you write, for example, had Anselm. You raised the, the question kind of like, you know, devil's advocate playing along with this objection that there's this tension that between the God <laughs> yeah. of the philosophers, God mm-hmm. of the Bible. And, and you, you asked, had Anselm simply failed to see the tension between his philosophical life and his religious life? And you say, no, uh, to believe that. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, not. <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely uh, not. To believe that God is too transcendent, too infinite to know or care about us here on planet Earth is to limit God that's- in, that's incredibly ironic, isn't it? because here we're talking about <laughs> <Yeah>. perfect being <laughs> and the very objection mm-hmm. uh itself that uh well you know this type of God would you know be uncaring well that is, itself would limit god <laughs> so yeah sure <laughs> uh, yeah i mean what when you when you're thinking through i mean you're you know on a on a daily basis um i mean as you just mentioned you know you if someone actually reads uh, and so they'll discover, wow, uh, this is one extended prayer. By the time they get to yeah. some, some of the end of his writings, they realize um, he's doing nothing but but praying. Um, you know, as you think through Christians today, and um, I, what I would say is a disconnect between the deep things of God and maybe the Christian life or prayer. How would you encourage them to? How would you encourage them to? not divorce these two but but to keep them in unison
0: gosh um, i mean it not, not everyone um enjoys philosophy but you know for for those who do i i honestly believe that um you know reading reading something like saint augustine's confessions i mean just slowly and and you know um bit by bit it's just it's just so gorgeous to have this intertwining of of the Christian life and this, you know, just really deep genius (laughs) philosophy Um, for, for those who enjoy that, I think, I think they should, they should do it. Now, how, how do you bring that to people who don't, (laughs) <laughs> Don't enjoy that. That I'm. I'm not really sure. Although you know, I think um, e- even you know, just simply talking to people. Like at, at my church, we have a, a wonderful pastor, and he gives these wonderful sermons. And I think everyone understands them. And yet, he always has a a little kernel of a good philosophical idea. I I think you can. It, you can if you're a good teacher you can sort of incorporate that mm. for for everyone even people who who you know wouldn't wouldn't enjoy sitting down and reading saint augustine's confessions
2: right right well i hope that is uh to our listeners i hope that you're you're hearing kate out here that that's is an encouragement to you uh, maybe you're a uh, a minister out there who's um you know sunday morning you're entering into the pulpit or Wednesday comes along, and you're, you know, in there um, trying to apply things to um, a particular couple or family, whatever it would be, um, look for those opportunities, uh, those teaching opportunities as well. Um, I think, in, in the spirit of Anselm, you will discover just how applicable so much of uh, these deep things of God are for. Uh, the Christian life, but also for how we understand the Christian faith as a whole. Kate, it's been so much fun to have you on the Credo podcast. Um, I, I would just say uh, to our listeners, if, if you uh, want to dive deeper into some of Kate's writings, pick up one of her books, uh, Perfect Being Theology, for example. Uh, pick up her book on Anselm, uh, another example there. Um, but uh, dig into these things Pencil, highlighter, uh, pen in hand <laughs> And uh, I hope I hope, uh, Like Anselm That it will not only uh, Give you a more accurate understanding Of who our great God is But also uh, drive you Into to your knees in prayer Kate, thank you so much for joining us
0: Oh, well, it was just a pleasure Thank you so much for having me
2: Now you can fill
1: up on theology Each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.